All right, First Timothy tonight. Um, Lord willing, next week, weather permitting, we'll be in Second Timothy, but there was too much in First Timothy, and we may not go the length we've been going time-wise tonight, I don't know, but um, we, we, it would be too much to put those two together. So I'm going to actually put 2 Timothy probably with Titus right now. That's kind of what I'm looking at unless, unless we have to do it by itself. But then after Titus is a little one-chapter book of Philemon, so it's a matter where to put it. So it may be that we do 2 Timothy, and then we might do Titus and Philemon together. Uh, and then the book of Hebrews is back to a longer book. So uh, anyway, uh, tonight we'll look at 1 Timothy and um, get an overview of it as we uh, check this chapter or this book out. So we've been looking at so far when we started in the book of Romans, we've been looking at letters that Paul wrote to churches, to Christians, and uh, specifically to either a specific uh, town like Corinth uh, or then a region like Rome or Galatia, the book of Galatians. Uh, Ephesus is a city and the church at Ephesus and then the church at uh, Corinth. And then uh, the Thessalonian believers, we looked at that the last two weeks. We studied uh, first, or excuse me, last week, first and second Thessalonians. That was a lot to fit into one study. Uh, but we looked at both of those together. So now he turns for the next three books, Tim, first Timothy, second Timothy, Titus. He uh, now is writing to two young men who are actually pastors. And uh, they, he writes to them. And the things he writes to them are not only for them as pastors, but for the people they're responsible for, for the churches they're responsible for. And so as we see um, tonight, this first letter, Timothy, next week, like I said, Lord willing, we'll be in 2 Timothy. But tonight we look into six chapters. And in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul talks about basically, if you want to boil it down to one thing, it would be leadership in the local church. So he writes to Timothy about himself personally, about his personal life, but also as, as he pastors and, and leads others. And so uh, we're going to look at some of the things that he, um, he faced in the ministry. And uh, even though, you know, um, y'all are pastors, it, it's still there's a lot in there practical for Christian living. So 1 Timothy was written about 62 to 65 A.D., and that would have been probably during Paul's third missionary journey. Um, he had uh, one more journey after that when he went to Rome, and then it wasn't too long after, probably a year or so after he went to Rome in which he was martyred. But we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week, Second Timothy. But anyway, uh, it was written about 62 to 65 A.D., <clears throat> somewhere probably on that third missionary journey. He writes, uh, this is just going to be a quick overview, and then we're going to go back and look at, at um, break down a little bit some of the highlights as we, we've been doing as we cruise through 1 Timothy. The first chapter, you see some of Paul's opening words to Timothy, and as he writes to him, there's a greeting, of course, and he's uh, thankful for Timothy. And then he gives a little bit of his testimony. We'll come back to that in some verses in a little bit. But he gives, starting about verse um, 11, Paul rejoices how God had saved him and that he had called him into the ministry down to about verse 16 or so. And then um, he, um, he, writes, he writes to him concerning um, his, how God saved him and called him into the ministry, something that Timothy could relate to, uh, at least to some degree, of course. Then he talks about in chapter 2, public praying. He talks about... Um, um, 
men praying and uh, women praying and talks about uh, women's ministries in the church or their women in the church there and uh, talk about that a little bit here in 1 Timothy 2. We'll look over some of those verses in a moment also. Then he talks about in chapter 3, um, it's, um, it's, not a, it's, it's only 16 verses. The average, well, chapter 4 is also 16 verses. But in this chapter, he talks about the two what we call offices of pastor and deacons. He also has um, a couple other things he, he talks about in there, but mostly it's about uh, pastors and deacons, and we'll get back to that uh, in just a few moments. Then we get to chapter 4. <clears throat> He talks to him a little bit about the apostasy or the falling away and how to deal with it. Now, we won't go into this a lot tonight because we'll spend more time on this, Lord willing, in 2 Timothy because he, he's got a lot more detail about it in 2 Timothy, about the last days and about what's called the falling away or the long word is the word apostasy. And so um, he deals with that more in 2 Timothy. So we won't spend as much time on it in 1 Timothy. Then in chapter 5, he talks about some of the duties of a pastor and um, then also uh, in, that, um, in that chapter, we'll, we'll come back to this also, he talks about uh, widows in the church. And then chapter 6, he talks about how believers uh, should relate not only to other believers, but to unbelievers as well. And uh, we'll, we'll see uh, in chapter 6 several things he gives to Timothy, writes to Timothy about that. They're very practical for, for you and me also. So let's look, as we do, let's take a little bit of a, a mileage and efficiency and look at some of the things that Timothy faced. These aren't necessarily in order. Um, actually, I, come, I, I jump back to an earlier part of chapter 4 after this page, but let's look at a few of these things that he faced uh, in the ministry. Um, to do so, the first one's in chapter 1, verse 3, but let's read verse 1 and 2 in the introduction to see as he, as he um, um, begins this letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. And to Timothy, my own son in the faith. And notice that's not his biological son, it's his son in the faith. And so Paul quite likely led Timothy to the Lord. Uh, but even if, he, if somebody else had led him to the Lord, Paul kind of took him under wing and discipled him, if you want to use that term. He was a mentor to him um, as, a, as, a, um, as teaching him you know, about the Christian life, but also uh, in the duties of, of pastoring, too. He, he taught him about probably both of those things. And so he says uh, he's his son of the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, we've seen that name, that title for Jesus in pretty much every one of his writings since Romans. He, he addresses Jesus as Jesus Christ our Lord. And we'll see it at the end when we look at, when we look at um, the, um, the ways uh, that Jesus is mentioned. And there are a lot more in here than, than in just six chapters than some of his other books that he wrote even longer. Uh, now verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. He's, the word besought is a word really for practically for begging. You know, I'm, as I told you, I'm begging you to stay at Ephesus. So Timothy, we've already looked at the book of Ephesians. Timothy at some point was there at the city of Ephesus. And he, was, he had a pastoral position or duty it's to, to some degree there at Ephesus. And so he says, uh, I, I want you to stay there. When I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So he was quite, 
quite likely get a little overwhelmed with his responsibilities, especially as Paul was gone on this missionary journey and Timothy was there at Ephesus. Remember a previous journey, I think it was his second journey, where he traveled with Paul, I believe, for, for a while. But um, he uh, now, while Paul's gone, and as he writes in this letter, he writes from his missionary, third missionary journey while, while Timothy is uh, there in Ephesus and, and doing the duties of a pastor. And so he says, stay there. Don't quit. Don't leave. you got to keep going. So he might have been very, getting very overwhelmed to, to maybe quit or, or to even leave. But he says, I'm begging you. I'm telling you, don't leave. And look why he says not to leave. That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So apparently there was some, uh, as Paul had had to face in other places, there was some false doctrine being taught. And he wanted him to stay there. Timothy, You've been taught right. Timothy, you know the word and you stand strong upon the word. You stand strong upon what you know to be true and don't let anyone try to uh, come in to the church there at Ephesus and, and bring a bunch of false doctrine there. So um, Paul wants to encourage him to continue on. Chapter 4, verse 12. Timothy was a young man and there at Ephesus, he likely found himself amidst of probably all age groups of believers, but apparently a good many of them were older. Um, however old Timothy was, I'm guessing Timothy was probably in his maybe mid to late 20s. Um, and so uh, for however old he was, he had a lot of people in his congregation that were older than him. Some of them maybe a decade. Some of them might have been older to be his parents or even grandparents possibly. But look what he tells him in verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth. But be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, showing that conversation is not always the same thing as speech because conversation includes what we say. It says there in word. So there, it's not only what you say, it's how you live, how you walk, how you serve the Lord. In conversation, in word, um, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. So he tells him, just because you're younger, Timothy, don't let the, the older ones in the congregation despise that fact or despise the fact or look down upon you because you're younger. Um, you may not have the years of maturity they do. Timothy was probably single, didn't have any, you know, a wife or children. And so he says, don't let them, don't despise your own youth. Don't, don't look down on yourself because you're younger than they are. You just be an example. You be what you're supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to do as you lead um, God's people. Then verse 13 to 15, Paul encourages him again because um, maybe as a young man, it was hard for him to keep his focus centered. Maybe because of pastoring so many responsibilities, it might have been hard to stay focused on some of the things he needed to uh, spend time on. Now, God gives us all the same amount of time in a day, but um, we, you know, it's wise to really look at your responsibilities and your obligations and try to, you know, every day spend the right amount of time on each of them. And so maybe he had a problem with that. Maybe he was easily distracted with that. But look at verse 13 to 15 of chapter 4. Till I come, give attendance to reading. In other words, keep reading. So whatever scripture they had then, he had, he had obviously... Uh, the uh, opportunity to do that, probably all Old Testament at that point, but he had the opportunity to, to uh, read God's Word. He said, keep reading, give attendance to reading, to exhortation. That would be, um, a lot of times it would be to, uh, just simply the responsibility of preaching, to exhort. To exhort means you're urging someone to, to move on to, you know, to, to uh, spiritually grow and to um, 
um, to, to exhort means to, uh, to, to push them or, or help, help them go in the right direction of spiritual growth, whether it's in the positive or in the negative, whether it's warning them about, as we saw the verse before, about those who teach you know, other doctrine. Um, and then he says, um, give attendance to exhortation and to doctrine. Verse 14, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given of thee by prophecy with the laying on the hands by, presby- by the presbytery. So he was um, obviously uh, had the, you know, a gift to be pastoring and serving the Lord in that way. And apparently he was chosen among other believers, uh, other of the leaders there, maybe even some of the other apostles for the responsibility of doing that, being a pastor. Um, I don't know how many of these you may have been to. They have for both for deacons and for pastors, they have um, what they call a uh, ordination service where there'll be other pastors that will come in. And, and if it's a deacon ordina- ordination, it'd be the other deacons of the church and sometimes guests and even, maybe even sometimes other pastors. And what they do is, is symbolically as they go by, and they'll speak to them. Uh, after there's been a message and so forth, and they'll lay hands on them, they'll put them on their shoulder, maybe on their head. And it's something symbolic as they pray that, you know, God has called that that man for that particular responsibility. And so um, he said, you know, remember you've been called to this and just stay faithful to what God's called you to. Verse 15, meditate upon these things. To meditate is to think about them over and over, to keep them in your mind. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. He says, Timothy, if you'll keep these things I'm giving you, keep them in perspective, make them priority, then others will see um, the uh, results in your life and they'll see how um, you're, you're profiting spiritually in your life and in their lives. So he might have been prone to neglect his duties and his growth and Paul kind of nudges him on to get him, keep him on the right path. Um, the next one, go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, we said that chapter 4 will, uh, deals a little bit with apostasy, and we'll see that in a moment uh, in one way, but we'll talk about it in more detail next week when we get to 2 Timothy. But look at chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, and this has to do with dealing with false teachers. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit, that's a capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly. In other words, he's really, really impressing this as I write this. So as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, the Holy Spirit inspires him, and as he's doing it, he's speaking expressly. He's making sure Paul understand this and put this in this letter to Timothy, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Put a pen there, Lord willing, next week when we get to 2 Timothy, we'll see more about this departing from the faith. But he says in the latter times, there'll be those who depart from the faith. You can't depart from something that you didn't already have. You can't depart from the faith if you don't have faith, if you haven't already um, you know, placed faith in Christ. And we'll come back to that next week, so just put a pen there. To seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. I don't know if you remember, or maybe you did this in school, maybe you didn't. I remember at the fall of the year when I was in elementary school, a uh, teacher would get us to bring in fall leaves. Y'all ever do that? And get wax paper and take an iron and iron over them, and you'd have that thing preserved for along those pretty colors. I don't know if you ever did that. Um, but anyway, that's when I, when I see that about a hot iron seared, I think of that. Um, that he says these false teachers, their conscience is seared with a hot iron. They've been teaching error so long they don't even realize they're doing it. 
and their conscience is seared with it. And so um, he, he says, Timothy, this is a description of what they're like. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. We'll come back to this actually in just a moment. From meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So um, he gives a little bit of description here of some of the false teachers in, their day, in that day. And that was some of the things that they were... Um, that they were focusing on. And, and so we'll come back actually to verse 3 before we end our study in just a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 8. He, um, he encourages them to keep the focus on the spiritual, not just the physical. Physical is important, but spiritual is equally or even more important, really. Look at verse 8. For bodily exercise profiteth little. And notice he didn't say it doesn't profit at all. He says it profits little. It does profit. There is profit to exercise, to walking, to exercise. But look at what he says here. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So he tells him, and maybe again, Timothy being a young man, maybe he, you know, uh, you know, did you know worked out or jogged or did something in that you know in, in his young years? Uh, maybe he did that a lot. But Paul says that's good. But don't forget that godliness is profitable to all things. It's much more important than the physical, even though the physical is important. And so he says it's profitable to all things because it has a promise of the life that now is, and the life which is to come. Uh, bodily exercise is mostly for the life that now is. Nothing wrong with that. But godliness is not only for what's now, but what is to come. So he, um, made sure, he wanted him to make sure he kept his emphasis right, not just on the physical, but especially on the spiritual. Now, let's take a little time to um, look at, break down a few places that are hi uh, highlight some places here. Look at verse, um, we'll go ahead and look at verse 1 to 3, and then we'll pick up at verse 4 and 5. That's where we want to focus on a little bit here. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, now he gives four different descriptions of what prayer is. Supplications. That's when you're asking for God to supply. You see the word supply in there, supplicate. Supply for a need. Um, uh, whether it's a financial need or sometimes uh, health. We, we have a lot of folks we, we pray for that have sickness. So supplications, asking God to supply for something. That's a word for prayer. Prayers, that's a general word for prayer, and that would simply be talking to God in general, worshiping Him, talking to Him as a, as a son to a father, as a child to a father. Uh, prayer, it's just a general word for prayer, talking to God. Intercession. Intercession is talking to God for other people. To intercede means that you're praying in somebody else's behalf. Now, sometimes we pray for people that are praying for themselves, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that many of those on our list, our, our church family and others, that when we pray for them, they're probably already praying too. But as, as the saying goes, you can't have too much prayer. Now, you can pray too much without putting feet on your prayer sometime, but you can never have too much prayer. And so um, when there's a need, you know, God's people, uh, as, many, as many people as you can share it with or feel comfortable to share that need with, uh, to have them pray for that. But that's the other word, intercessions. That means where you intercede. You're asking God to do something for someone else. Uh, as, I, as I say all the time, it's very important to talk to people about the Lord. But it's also important to talk to the Lord about people. And so that's what intercession is. Giving of thanks, that is to thank God. 
to rejoice, to thank Him. Sometimes just to thank Him in advance when we pray, Lord, um, I'm asking you about this, I'm bringing this need before you, and I'm thanking you in advance because I know that you you know what's best, I know you have a plan. And so um, and he's, that's another word for prayer uh, that describes prayer. Be made for all men. All means everyone, and we're going to find that out in verse 4. For all men. And then he gives, he breaks it down and gives a little more specific of people we should pray for. For kings and for all that are in authority. I mean, you know me, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, to get on a, a soapbox. But, you know, I, I disagree with pretty much everything our president does. I mean, you, he does it, and I'm probably going to disagree with it. I pray for him every week. And his wife. I pray mostly that they'll get saved, but I pray for them every week. I don't agree with them. I, if I met them in person, I may not like them. But the Bible doesn't say to pray for them because you like. Them. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, and he wrote some other things to the Romans about authority, and also to Peter, that was written under Nero. Nero's the one that persecuted Christians, and yet Paul says pray for them, pray for kings and those that are in authority. I'm glad he said, went ahead and said those are in authority. We don't have a king, so we can give a cop out, right? We don't have a king. All that are in authority. That, and he gives why? That we, whether they do or not, that we might lead, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So the scripture tells us that praying for them, it'll give us a quiet and peaceable life. Now, there are times in our life that things may be kind of upheaval, but... Um, he promises a quiet and peaceful life to us in godliness and honesty if we pray for those in authority. I'm making a point here. I'm getting, getting somewhere. Verse uh, 3, 4, this is good and acceptable in the God, sight of God our Savior. Now notice there's a semicolon because he's continuing the thought. Verse 4, who will have all men to be saved? And of course that would include women, not just males. But how do we know that means all men? Back up again to verse 1. I exhort prayer, supplication, prayers to be made for all men. So uh, for someone to say, well, um, he only wants to, the only ones that are going to be saved are the ones that, you know, Jesus uh, foreknew would be saved. No, they, he died for everybody. Jesus died for everybody. He didn't die for just a few here and not some over here. He died for everybody. He wants all to be saved. He will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one mediator... Uh, there's one God, excuse me, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So God's will for everyone on this planet is that they be saved. Are they going to be saved? No, not everybody. But it's his will. Why is it his will? Because he made the provision for it through his son, Jesus Christ. His blood wasn't shed for just so many here. Um, his blood wasn't just shed for, for a certain race or for a certain nation. His blood was shed for everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, you know, everyone's a soul whom God uh, created and loves and for whom Christ died. So it's God's will for everybody to be saved. Not everybody's going to be saved. So, uh, but the scripture makes it very clear. So if you ever get into a discussion with someone that says, well, Jesus only died for certain ones, Take them right here to this verse. All means all. The next thing we'll look at is the mystery of God in this chapter 3, verse 16. So in Paul's letters to the churches, we've seen a couple of mysteries. When we looked at Ephesians, we saw the mystery of the, of, of the bride of Christ, of the church. Um, and he likens it to marriage. It says that we are of his flesh and of his bones. And then Paul uses that example in Ephesians 5. 
of um, husband wiping one flesh, that's a physical way of saying spiritually we are one with Christ. So we are the bride of Christ. That's the closest relationship on planet earth that there is. And so he calls it a mystery um, um, of the body of Christ. And so here he uses a mystery. A mystery is something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It's revealed now, and uh, this is revealed to Paul. Verse 16, chapter 3, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So it gives from his birth to his, all the way to his ascension, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension. God was manifest in the flesh. Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ that he was born. He, he came to earth to be born uh, as a, uh, you know, as a little baby and, and um, um, was, was born and lived a life without sin, justifying the spirit. Um, that was when, you know, when his ministry began, basically. He was justified in the spirit when um, John recognized him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then Jesus was baptized there in the Jordan River by John. And the Bible says the spirit, like a dove, descended upon him. He, he was justified in the spirit, seen of angels. Um, the Bible speaks in um, a couple of places where angels attended him. When he was tempted of Satan after that 40 days in, of fasting in the wilderness, and 40 nights, he was tempted of Satan. Then it says after that third time, and he answered Satan, Satan left. And the Bible says angels ministered unto him. And so um, he was seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So the mystery of godliness is that Christ is God manifest in the flesh. Now in the Old Testament, Matthew 1.23 is a quote from the book of Isaiah where it says that his name should be called Emmanuel, God with us. In the Old Testament, they knew that there would be a Messiah, but they didn't understand in no way back then that he would be actually God manifest in the flesh. Go with me to 1 John for just a moment. Look at a reference here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 3. So the mystery of godliness is God was manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ himself being God in the flesh. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out in the world. And, and Timothy, Paul had told Timothy where there would be false prophets also. Verse 2. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come to the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whom you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. <coughs> Excuse me, swallowed wrong. So he gives a clear distinction here, those who confess that Jesus has come to the flesh, those who do not. And the Bible says that he is indeed God manifest in the flesh, that Christ is God in the flesh and um, if any who deny that, he calls that the spirit of Antichrist. So that's the mystery of God in this. God manifests in the flesh. Um, this is another, just a side note here, but go to chapter 6 and verse 13. Paul mentions um, something from the gospel accounts. It's found in um, two or three of the gospels where Jesus stands before Pilate, and uh, he mentions it here. 
in chapter 6, verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth, that means to bring alive, all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. So um, there was, whether the Gospels had been written down, any of them that they were able to circulate at the time or not, at least by word of mouth, the apostles, until the Gospels were written, they all knew and passed along that um, uh, Jesus and his trial before uh, Pilate, his crucifixion, and all, and all of that they knew about. John 18, John 18, verse 33 to 38 is a reference here. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation, the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Uh, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered from the Jews. Um, but now my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. So after Jesus made that statement, Pilate says, What is truth? And there he was looking at truth right in the face. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus testified, gave a good uh, uh, testimony, as it says, a good confession uh, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, and that's, that's it there where he stands before Pilate and uh, the accusations that were made and answered them. All right, and then Paul, uh, even though this, this particular book is not so much about the rapture, he, he couldn't go without mentioning it. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to 2 Timothy, Lord willing, next week, we'll see where he picks that back up and mentions uh, the appearing of our Lord when he comes back for us. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 and verse 8. All right, let's take the scenic route. Let's go back to what we were we hit on just a moment ago, chapter 5, verse number 3 and 4. And while we're there, we're going to look at something else too. I don't think I wrote it down uh, in notes here. Chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. I got the wrong verse. That I was trying to put other notes there. I'm sorry. Go to chapter... Um, that should be chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Then we're going to go to chapter 5, verse 3 in a moment. Look at 4. That should be 4, 3, and 4 about food. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God had created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. So right, right here at this point, as he writes to Timothy, remember they're in the church age. Jesus had already died, was buried, and rose again and ascended to heaven, and now the Holy Spirit comes down. They're in the church age, all right? So the Old Testament law, no longer under the law, but there was a time when the law was in effect for Israel. But let's look at a couple of references. Uh, go to Genesis 9 for a moment, way back to Genesis chapter 9. And that, that place in Leviticus, I'll get to in a moment. You don't have to turn to that one. You can write that down as a reference for later. But Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 
down through verse number 4. Genesis 9, verse 1. Now, this is after the flood and after the waters had, had uh, abated, after they had all, um, uh, it, they were able to, to get out of the ark on dry ground. And God tells uh, Noah in chapter 8, bring out the animals, bring your family out. <clears throat> and then chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, just like he told Adam um, in chapter 1. Verse 2, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. In your hand they are delivered. Uh, when God originally created Adam, he gave him dominion over creation, remember. And so he tells Noah, basically, I'm giving you the same thing I gave to Adam. Verse 3, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Now, up until the fall, that wasn't true for Adam. Um, or, or even after the fall, they ate of the fruit of the trees, right? They ate of fruit and, and everything like that, vegetables or whatever, they ate that. But now God says to Noah, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Now he's saying also animals are you know, on, your, on your list of groceries. Uh, verse um, 4. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. In other words, um, you know, don't eat something that's, that's still bleeding. You know, don't, <laughs> don't eat it while it's moving, you know, and don't, don't eat it with blood in it. He says, but, you know, the, now eat meat. Now uh, I'm giving you this for food, um, Noah. This is now food for you. Skipping to go to Acts 10 while you make your way for Israel, for the Jews, all right? One particular nation, not for us today, not for the church age. I know some people choose to be vegetarians. That's a separate thing. That's not, that's not what we're talking about tonight. Um, but for the Jews, for Israel, they're given a whole list in Leviticus of, of meat that they could and could not eat. Uh, cows were fine, but not pigs. They couldn't eat any kind of pork. Some sea life, some, some, there were some, some fish they could eat, a lot of fish and a lot of seafood they couldn't eat. Anything with shells and there were other guidelines they couldn't eat of that. There's some fish they could eat. Of course, they could eat lamb. They could eat, um, uh, I mentioned cow. So uh, they could eat a lot of other things, but there was a whole list of things they were not to eat. Even though God gave that mandate to Noah, why did he give that in Leviticus? Because Israel was God's people, and he called them to be his own. Practically, when they were crossing the desert, <laughs> they weren't endangered in those foods, anyway, a lot of those foods anyway. They couldn't eat any seafood in the desert. I mean, you, there's nothing... None defined. So, uh, but he told them, these things you do not eat. So we are not under that today. God gave Noah the mandate to eat of any kind of food. Um, that all of it's good. Israel, he says, no, nope, not for you. You're my called chosen people, and I don't want you to eat that. That's not for you to eat. But in the New Testament, look at Acts 10. <clears throat> Acts chapter 10. Now we saw where Paul said in 1 Timothy Nothing should be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. Um, first, or excuse me, Acts chapter 10. Acts 10. This is where Peter has a, a, uh, a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. This is where we see a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile who got saved. Peter was called primarily at first just to be an apostle to Israel, to the Jews. So the Jewish... Food laws, all of that, Peter knew about. 
And so now they're Gentiles being saved. And so God's done a new thing. Now there is the church, the body of Christ, where Jews get saved and they're, not, no, they're no longer seen as Jews. Gentiles get saved and they're no longer seen as Gentiles. They're seen as being in the body of Christ. But because these Jews are now, once they get saved, they're not under that Levitical law of food anymore. Look what the Bible says in Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 9. It's kind of lengthy, but start at verse 9. On the morrow as they went to their journey and drew nigh to the city, Peter went up upon a housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. So inside, apparently, they were preparing food, and, but he was on the top of that house. He fell into a trance. This, these are mentioned a couple times in Scripture, and obviously this is something the Holy Spirit worked through at that time. All right, So that's all I want to say about that until we to, to get to our point. Verse 11, And saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. Whereon were all manner four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And that's God speaking to him, obviously. But what does Peter do? Now, Peter, this is the same Peter that said three times, I'm not going to deny you. Peter was a little slow. But once he got something, well, he really got it. Verse 14, Peter said, Not so, Lord. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, Lord. But how many times have we done that in our life? Think about it. Anyway, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And he probably was telling the truth, I'm sure. But look what God says to him in verse 15. The voice spake unto him the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Verse 16. This was done thrice, three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. So uh, God had to tell him three times. You know what's interesting? How many times did he deny the Lord? Three times, remember? And then God, to, the Lord told him on the seashore, um, asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lamb. So anyway, um, it took him three times. And he, we may be kind of like Peter sometimes. Uh, it had to be told. But anyway, that's chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 about food. So in the church age, there is no Levitical law for us to be under. Now, I'll side note this. Some people are vegetarians and they want to be. Well, that's fine if you want to be. Um, you know, anyway, so there's some that are vegetarians, some that eat only certain kinds. There's some believers who go by that or, you know, some denominations, they try to go by that Levitical law that they don't eat pork and other things like that. And that's fine if you don't want to do that. But as Paul will write later on, or, or excuse me, as he, Paul, as he wrote in uh, Galatians, don't try to put somebody under the law. If you want to live under yourself, that's fine. Just don't think you're counting on the law to save you. But if you want to practically live under the law for yourself, that's fine. Don't push it on someone else. So in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about this very thing about food. He says, don't judge your brother or sister by what they eat or don't eat. Just because they don't eat or don't eat the same, eat or don't eat the same thing that you do or don't eat the same thing. You do. You know, in other words, if you don't eat pork and they do, and you're wanting to live under Leviticus 11 about pork and not eating it, don't judge them because they do. Don't judge them for what they eat. So anyway, uh, Paul spends more time on that in 1 Corinthians 8 about that and talking about meat. Uh, so I'll tell you what, while we're still there, go down to verse 5 real quick. I'm running out of time quicker than I thought. Pick up at verse... Um, 
three. I think this is what happened was I was going to put four, three, and four, and then five, three, and four on another slide. And I, I put the five, three, and four with the food where I was supposed to make another slide for this. Five, three, and four, and five. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them first show uh, first to show piety at home. And, or piety, if you want to pronounce it that way, is probably the right way, and to requite uh, their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplication and prayers night and day, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Keep on verse, um, go down to verse, um, look at verse 9 for now. Let not a widow be taken of the number of threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of good works, so, in other words, there's some that are, that are widows indeed. In other words, they reach a certain age. But there's some, they may be young widows, and they may be able to, you know, they may decide at some point to marry again. And if they do, he's saying, you want to take care of those that are, are widows indeed, and that they're, they're older, they're elderly, they're probably, you know, most, most likely never going to marry again or can't marry again or whatever. And he said, they need to be taken care of. So, if there is, uh, among many things that New Testament churches are failing in, widows ministry, is one of them. I really believe that. Um, I need to get this rolling soon with the volunteers that signed up for it. But you remember last year, last summer, last fall, I had the sign-up sheet for a couple of different ministries, and this is one of them. I think widow ministry is very, very, very important for the local church. They need to reach out to widows in the church, um, those that are... Um, whether they can attend or not, if they're widows, they need to, to be helped. Now, I understand this too. A lot of times you'll have cases where a widow has children and grandchildren who can help with most of their needs, and that's understandable. I understand that. But as Paul points out here, there are some who have nobody else, and no one else can take care of them. That's where the church needs to step in. That's where churches uh, need, need to do that. Now, there's some churches, I'm sure, do a great job with that ministry, but uh, overall, that, that's definitely a ministry that's neglected, I'm afraid, by many churches. All right, we need to move on. I'm spending more time here than I thought I would. There's a lot in First Timothy in there, folks. Chapter 6, verse 10. For money is the root of all evil. Did I quote that right? No, I did not. Look at it again. For the love of money, the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Money is never seen as, as, as wicked in the Bible or evil in the Bible. It's always the love of money. Remember the guy that Jesus gave the parable about the, the guy in Luke chapter, um, I think it's chapter 12, where he had the, you know, the barns and he was going to build a bigger barn. There was nothing wrong with that man using money to, to take care of himself. The problem, as Jesus pointed out, is he left God out of everything. And that's when Jesus said in that parable, he said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. So um, God's not against wealth in and of itself. He's against what it can do. And it says here, the love of money is the root of all either, evil. Um, let me go over this real quick. Money, money's a lot like time in some ways. But there are three things particular about money that, that uh, I have in some notes, and I've used this before in some sermons in the past about money. No matter how much money you have, you either earn it, receive it, spend it, invest it, give it, or lose it every day. Just like time, in a sense. So you may do more than one of those in a day. <laughs> Sometimes you spend it, you think you realize you lost it. But anyway, uh, you either receive it, you earn it, you spend it, you invest it, you give it, or lose it every day. Another thing about money, it affects every area of our life to some degree either directly 
or indirectly affects every area of our life. There are very few things you can think of that money doesn't affect. It may not affect your worship, although money, you know, giving to the Lord is an act of worship. Um, there may be some things that it doesn't affect, but affects every area of our life to some degree, either directly or indirectly, uh, especially when bills are due, right? And that dreaded tax season coming up, things like that. Number three, the way we handle it affects our present and our future. It affects our present and our future. So money in and of itself, there's, it's not wicked. It's not wrong. It's not wrong for somebody to have a lot. Um, if they, you know, if they, uh, uh, if they realize the Lord, you know, has blessed them and they, they recognize the Lord and they thank him for that and they, you know, hopefully give back. But that's true for no matter how much money you have. We, you know, the person that has, whether we think it's a lot or we think it's not much compared to everybody else, uh, still the Lord looks at our heart. He looks at, he looks at our attitude toward money and are we, you know, um, are we keeping it, hoarding it all or are we using it to serve the Lord? Um, Jesus said, lay not for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. Um, science falsely so called. This is one of my little things I like to kick around a little bit. Chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. That may, what that means is the science falsely, falsely so called is an opposition to what you know to be the truth. Verse 21, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. What are, what are some things that are science falsely so called? Well, there is no God. They say there is no God. Atheism is science falsely so called. They think there is no God and you just trust science. Well, guess who put science into work, right? Uh, everything evolved from nothing. I forgot my quotes at the end of nothing. Evolution, that's also science falsely so-called. Um, how can they prove that? They can't. It's a faith, just like Christianity is a faith that God did what he said he did. But in evolution, you've got to have faith to believe that everything evolved from nothing or however they explain it got here. It's not a child, abortion rights. That's fine. science falsely so-called. That's not science. It's a life. It's, it's not a choice. It's a life. Science and the Bible contradict. Folks, is anything in, the, in science... If it's true, it's never going to contradict Scripture. You say you can't find anything there about DNA and all that stuff. Maybe you can't. But if it's true, it's not going to contradict anything that's in Scripture. What's in Scripture, anything in Scripture that, that reaches and touches any part of science is going to be accurate. They, scientists probably won't agree with that. Most of them wouldn't. But science and the Bible, they do not contradict. If it's true, the Bible already has said that. The universe has always existed. Uh, there again, that goes back kind of to evolution. Uh, there are multiple genders. That's another science falsely so-called. This is not science. People say, trust the science. What science? There are, there are five genders? There are 55 genders? That's science? No. Science, folks, is something that can be observed in a laboratory or tested. It can be tested. It can be seen and proved. And if it's not proved, it's not science. It's science doing research. There's a huge difference in those two things. Um, so anyway... The Bible warns about that. Science falsely so-called, and there's a lot of it out there. We saw already praying for those in authority. We looked at care for widows. We looked at love of money, uh, and that's first. That's tune-up. Those are some things very practical in the book of 1 Timothy for everybody, not just for Timothy, a pastor, but for everybody. All right, here's some uh, titles of Jesus. Paul gives more in this book than he does in some of his other letters to the churches. Uh, Christ Jesus, our Lord, he uses that in almost every book, uh, letter, I think in every letter to the churches. 
Um, the King Eternal, chapter 1, verse 17, now unto the King Eternal, uh, the only wise God, immortal, invisible. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he's called one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, uh, another title. Uh, he's called in chapter 4, verse 10, the Savior of all men. Uh, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. In chapter 6, verse 15, there are two in there. He's called the blessed and only potentate. A potentate means basically a one who's uh, in royal authority, like a king or like someone else, maybe under a king that's, that's uh, royalty. Um, and then, of course, in chapter 6, verse 15, he's also called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, uh, who is in his time shall show who is a blessed and only potentate, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that phrase there, that, those two titles are echoed in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back. The Bible says it's written on his vesture of his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so um, Paul gives more titles there to, in Timothy's letter than he does even in the letter to, the, to some of the churches. Uh, home address, some good verses to memorize. He will have all men to be saved. We talked about that um, when we talked about salvation for all, who gave himself a ransom for all, chapter 2, verse 5. Um, the mystery of godliness, 316, God was manifest in the flesh. That's a great verse to memorize. And then chapter 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. I think that was the right verse, 6, 6 or 6. Yeah, but godliness with contentment is great gain. All right, we'll stop there. Any questions or anything? A lot in First Timothy. We went further and longer than I thought we would tonight. So, yes, ma'am, Denise? Yeah, um, two things. Tony and I were talking about the animals going on Noah's Ark. Uh -huh. And he said, well, I wonder what they did with the animals that were carnivores, that were meat eaters. So from what you've said tonight, though, nobody, maybe people or animals, were eating meat until that after the that verse seems to indicate that, that even the animals didn't until after the flood. Yeah. And not to interrupt you here, but just a side note, I think one reason might have been because I think it's pretty apparent that once the uh, flood happened, the atmosphere changed. And that probably was one reason, not the only reason, but maybe one of the reasons that people didn't live as long. Once the atmosphere changed and lifespan got shorter, because by the time you get to Abraham, it's like, what, 140-something? So, um, so that might have been part of one of the changes that happened after. So, But anyway, um, yeah, that verse, even though it doesn't say animals, it's talking about to him and his sons, I think it really probably was for... Even the animals, too, because they probably all, which would make sense on the ark. They could all eat hay or something like that, so it was easier to feed them, you know. So, but anyway, I hope I didn't interrupt your question. Was that kind of what you're, where you're going? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I appreciate that. And then the other thing is, what all is involved in a widow indeed? What's all involved in the death? Well, um, go back and look at those verses, and I, I think age and the fact that they, you know, need that care and the fact that, um, uh, probably, especially if they don't have any any other help. Now, it doesn't mean that churches can't help other widows. Just he calls them widows indeed, and in that they should be priority because maybe uh, you know, in their case, in that day, maybe their husband had died, and maybe they didn't have children, or maybe their children were separated from them by distance and couldn't easily get to them. So, probably the factors, the main thing would probably be someone who really needed help from time to time that didn't, I mean, I can think of a couple of them in our church that, you know, but then they also have, have family, they have children. So 
Um, I think that no matter whether they have children or not, no matter where they are able to take care completely of every need, I think churches definitely need to have a ministry to check on them and help them as much as, as whatever needs they have, you know. And sometimes it's a matter of just visiting with them, especially if they can't attend. And uh, so th- those are some of the things that I think probably fall into that category just from what, what you see that Paul mentions about widows indeed. It would be, you know, he mentions a, an age range and then he talks about um, to take care of them. In fact, earlier verses say, um, let's see, verse number, Yeah, but look down at verse 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. Let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So from that verse, it sounds like those who have a need and no one else to take care of them. Uh, you got, yeah, there's some, I'm not saying in our church, I'm just saying in general. There's some widows that sit at home and draw a pension and maybe Social Security and they don't really have much. And if their children either aren't around or are able to help them whatever way, then that that leaves a that leaves a need wide open that needs you know to be able to step in and the church should should do that you know churches I'm not just talking about our church all ch- churches should do that so yeah I, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly or not but it seems like at some time when I was in that Sunday school class that it was said that a widow indeed if she had a divorce prior to she had a divorce got remarried. And then she became a widow. She wasn't a widow indeed because she had a prior divorce. Now, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. that's, you know, I'm remembering that correctly, but it just mm-hmm. seems like I've heard that before. I've checked that out. I've never seen that definition before. I've checked that out. That's, yeah. that's interesting. I'll... And then in verse 9, had it been the wife of one man, I don't know if maybe that has something to do with that that I heard. I don't know. And it could be. Uh, under three score, under 60 years old. That may be where they get the idea of, about the divorce. I don't know. But, um, you know, it says of pastors in chapter 3, which we, we may go into that when we get into Titus because Titus talks about pastors too, um, mentions to be the husband of one wife. And so there is the, there's the view that if a pastor's been married before um, and marries, he's not the husband of one wife. But... I, I, from Scripture, I really don't think that. I know in that day, there was a horrible problem with polygamy. I know that um, in, in general. And so in the culture they lived, that was a problem. And so if people got saved um, and they had been, um, they had more than one wife in that sense, that would be something they would have to obviously deal with. So, um but then again, if you took strictly husband of one wife or widow of one husband, um, if they die and they marry again, even though it might not have been a divorce, then that's more than one husband. So how do, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how do they count one husband. The only thing I can figure is is the, the problem they had that day with polygamy. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember when Charles Stanley's wife left him yeah. and they divorced. His church said that, as long as he didn't remarry, he right. would still be a pastor. Correct. I remember that. Mm-hmm. I remember that. But if he remarried while his ex-wife was still alive, 
then you would be disqualified. Yeah. Well, then you get into 1 Corinthians 7 passage about forsaking and, and leaving them. Because she left him, from what I understand, he didn't leave her. But then you get into the grounds, you get in, it gets really deep and technical, you know. So, um, anyway, good question, though. So, going back to it, um, let her be the husband and wife. Only thing I can figure is, is the polygamy problem because if, if they had divorced and then remarried and if that husband died, in one sense they had two husbands, but not, not really because one died. So I, I don't know. I, 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 that's, that's a hard passage, and there's still a lot of that I'm, I'm really trying to figure out completely. So but that was a good question, though. So, but I'm, I, I, just from what I see about the widows indeed, it would, and from that other verse we read in verse 16, it points to someone who probably does not get care from family at all or not able to help them in some way. So, but I do believe overall a widow ministry is very important, no matter how old or young they are. Some, some women are widows at a very young age. I've known several in my life that their husbands died at a young age, and whether they remarried or not, they're widows. So um, there's always the need for the church to just say, if they're a widow, we need to help them best we can as much as we can. So anyway, I hope that helps. All right, I'm looking forward to 2 Timothy, and we're going to have to, I don't know if we can get it all in one, two. I didn't think we were going to go this long tonight. But let's stand and close in prayer. Thank you all for your time tonight. I thought we'd actually end about 40 minutes, but that didn't work. Thank you, Lord, for time to be in your word tonight. There's so much in all of it, but tonight as we look in 1 Timothy, and so much that has to do with church ministry and pastoring, and then also the practical aspects that we've looked at tonight and the questions we've seen tonight uh, about practical aspects of of, um, of daily living as believers, uh, things that you address to Timothy that aren't in other letters, but they're there and we, we, uh, we see it and we, we pray that you'll help us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Savior as we study these things in our life. Pray that you'll keep us safe as we leave tonight and uh, watch over us on our way home. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.